0: blessing to have brother ted alexander and his family with us by the way i think it's the ladies of the family are doing the nursery so everybody could be out here uh they've heard all this stuff before you know and uh so but anyway it's been a blessing to have him with us It's been a real encouragement to us and uh i believe we're of a like-minded spirit and uh, we praise the lord for his ministry looking forward to what the lord's going to continue to do through him uh not only this afternoon but you know with his church plant in florida so Anyway, brother, you come and and give us this. I learned years ago that the mind can only take what the bottom can endure. Amen. So I'll try not to keep you long. Amen. I'll tell you like Elizabeth Taylor told her eighth husband. She said, Honey, I won't keep you long. Amen. <laughs> oh, isn't that terrible? Still can't get a break after all these years. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. It's been a wonderful time of fellowship. Amen. I'm thankful for the Lord allowing us to meet like this. And really, your pastor called me out of the blue, so I didn't know what to expect. Amen. You just never know. <laughs> and you can imagine the spectrum of things we've dealt with in all the years we've been on the road. But this has been a very good experience. Amen. We just hope we don't warp you too bad by the time we're gone. Amen. Then you got to, you know, it goes the other way. <laughs> How much did you have to endure? Amen. Uh, thankful for grace on both sides amen but it, it has been a blessing i i really uh hope that you get a hold of what i'm about to bring you um let's look back at leviticus 25 verse 10 you remember this verse the bible said and you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof it shall be a jubilee unto you and you shall return every man unto his possession you shall return every man unto his family and, and the teaching goes on concerning this but um, I want you to just be reminded again that Jew, uh, rather liberty is a doctrine of God. And these words that we see here, uh, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and all the inhabitants thereof, that is emblazoned upon an icon of liberty here in America. And I want you to think about that for a minute. We'll come back to that at the end and try to emphasize something. Uh, but I want to try to tell you the, uh, really the final story that I'll have an opportunity to share with you as to how America uh, became the the great nation of liberty that we are. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, thank you for liberty. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us in your word what it is. And it's a wonderful thing uh, where men can be free, women can be free. And Father, we get to uh, worship you unmolested and able to share your word without fear. And Father, I I thank you for liberty. Thank you for all the years we've had it here in America. Uh, We can see it right now eroding and slipping away right before our eyes. But Father, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, once again be reminded, uh, Lord, just what it costs to give it to us. May we be willing to understand it, to teach it to our children and defend it. And Father, you show us where those lines are and how we ought to do that, what we ought to do. But Father, for just a little while we have together, just remind us just how this nation became free. We don't believe it's an accident. We believe that you had your sovereign hand in the creation and protection and defense of this nation from the very beginning. So help me to tell that story clearly and maybe understandable. And Father, we thank You for all that we've seen this week, Your hand working and moving and helping people to serve You. God, I pray, again, we could draw inspiration from what we hear today. And I pray this nation, until Jesus comes, would be free until we hear that trumpet. Father, we thank You and praise You now for what You'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if we could have the lights again. Appreciate that we will jump right in amen we are now on the third part of the political contribution of the baptists obviously the first one being john clark and the rhode island charter where those principles first came and then of course this morning we got issues oh the absent-minded professor amen there we go now what in the world happened to that well it's got to be your it's got to be your screen amen So now we're going to move on to the second part of the Virginia Baptist. So when we left, we were with Jamie there in the jail, amen, and the Gooch. And so what a wonderful story. Um, He is actually um, trying to think how far that would be uh, from here. Well, uh, yeah, Jamie, well, I'm not sure how many hours that would be from here. But um, anyway, if, if you ever, by the way, we have an app. And so you might have, I'll leave and you'll say, I wonder where this place is. Where did he say that place was? Um, It's called Baptist Heritage Revival Society. It's really easy. It's on both platforms and it has these places on them. And if there's more information that you want about these places, it'd be easy just to shoot me an email. If you ever do get to traveling, I'll be happy to direct you any way way that I can to get to these places. Um, The jail doesn't sit there anymore where James Island was actually in prison. There's a I think it's a Church of God, some kind of Pentecostal church that sits on that corner now. Uh, But you can get an idea as to where, and there was a list of preachers that sat in this specific jail. Uh, But anyway, nonetheless, uh, let me move on. So we're in the midst of this uh, this development of the Baptist faith in Virginia, and this struggle begins to ensue. It's mostly a physical struggle. The Baptists, of course, are trying to exercise their religious liberty uh, that they have under God, and yet the, the state church is coming down on them very very hard, But at this time, the battle begins to transition, and any real major battle that's worth anything is going to transition into a war of words. We're in a a war of words today, and if you don't understand that, all you have to do is see that our former president is now banned from all the media platforms. They don't want him influencing anyone. They don't want people to hear his words, and you put something on they disagree with, and they'll put a flag on it, they'll cover it, they'll just take it down, or they'll put you in Facebook jail. And uh, so we understand that the media now being controlled by the left, they get this. They understand uh, that if you're going to win a battle, really, you have to change hearts and minds of people. They've done a pretty good job, sadly, through the public school system, through the public university system, and the liberal private universities. But uh, this is exactly what began to happen in Virginia. We mentioned a little bit about this. Uh, For example, slander became the name of the game. The Baptists were called everything you can possibly imagine. A lot of this is documented. I'll show you something here in just a moment. I have a picture somewhere in my archives and I don't know exactly where it's at. I need to throw it back into this slideshow, but it's an actual picture, uh, that was on microfish and it's a, an old Virginia Gazette and, uh, it was printed and uh, they still have a copy of it, and in the Virginia Gazette, which was a widely circulated, very much respected newspaper during the time, uh, they said this, so they called them liars, devils, witches, soothsayers, and everything in between. This was an actual article that was published on the devil's birthday, October 31st, 1771. That's Halloween, in case you didn't get that. Amen? But uh, they, they published this, and it was a slam to try to get people to think that Anabaptists or Baptist people there in Virginia are just a bunch of unlearned idiots. Notice what they say. This is supposedly a recipe to make an Anabaptist preacher. Now, this would have been circulated widely in Virginia to try to persuade them to hate the Baptists. Take the herbs of hypocrisy and ambition of each and handful. Of the spirit of pride, two drams. Of the seed of dissension and discord, one ounce. Of the flower of formality, three scruples. Of the roots of stubbornness and obstinacy, four pounds. I admit to that one. Amen. And bruise them all together in the mortar of vainglory with the pestle of contradiction, putting amongst them one pint of the spirit of self-conceitedness. I mean, this is more adjectives than ought to be legal. Amen. When it is lukewarm, let the dissenting brother take two or three spoonfuls of it morning and evening, before exercise, and whilst his mouth is full of the electuary, he will make a wry face, wink with his eyes, and squeeze out some tears of dissimulation. Then let him speak as the spirit of giddiness gives him utterance. This will make the schismatic endeavor to maintain his doctrine, wound the church, delude the people, justify their proceedings of illusions, foment rebellion, and call it by the name of liberty of conscience. So you can just feel the love for the Baptists through that one article, amen? This was one of many that they did over a series of years trying to alter the beliefs of the people and yet people were still getting saved everywhere and it angered the clergy and it angered the leadership there in Virginia. So we disagree largely with just about everything they said. However, uh, this part of liberty of conscience, we we got to understand... They knew exactly what the Baptists were fighting for. Now, I've mentioned that statement numerous times, and I would think by context and just some of the things we brought out, you would understand exactly what liberty of conscience actually means, but there may still be some people saying, could you actually define that for us, or what is liberty of conscience really? I think I know, but what is it? Well, we're going to get to that here a little bit later, and we're going to let... The man uh, defined that for you. say, who's the man? I'll, I'll tell you about him in just a minute. So God raised up brilliant men to fight for liberty. Uh, the Baptists, of course, in Virginia were led by men like Reuben Ford. Reuben Ford had a brilliant mind, and when it came time to start petitioning, they decided to join together and what they called the Virginia General Baptist Association. Now, this was Baptists, both Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike, and those in between, and they decided to get together for this reason. By the way, Our battles are not their battles and their battles were not our battles. They were fighting for liberty of conscience. And so I greatly appreciate that they could put by, by uh, apart some of their positions to be able to fight in the court system and in the legislature, the Virginia legislature, when it was a colony to attempt to win liberty of conscience for us, while still debating these things strenuously and maintaining their position. So Reuben Ford was one of those men who would author many of these petitions. And he was the pastor of a church called the Goochland Baptist Church. And that's one of the early Virginia churches, started in the 1700s. And then Isaac Bacchus was a great New England leader. While all this was going on, Bacchus was fighting for religious liberty. Bacchus was known to be a pamphleteer and then probably the first true Baptist historian on American soil. But Bacchus would circulate things and really influence people there in New England documenting all the unlawful persecutions. Then, of course, John Leland. We'll get to him in just a bit. We're going to focus on him for a bit this afternoon. Then non-Baptists like Patrick Henry, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson. Now, again, we mentioned early on, and I don't know if you still are in agreement with me or if you never were in agreement with me, but I really believe that John Clark is probably one of the most important Americans, if not the most important American that ever lived on American soil. He is the man that brought liberty that the Baptists had held and that they fought for and that they understood and he came and expressed it and then made sure that it stayed here. Amen. When he was dead and gone and thank God for that. Now, uh, when you think about that, if we should appreciate, and I mentioned this, you'll remember, I said, if we should appreciate a Madison and a Jefferson who took these principles and put them into our founding documents, how much more should we appreciate the guy that gave them the principles so that they could have them? Amen. And uh, in a sense, really, I want you to understand this and this is not a pri- Statement. It's a factual statement. And I believe you'll you'll see that as we get done with this second session. At least by the end of this, I hope you'll see this. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were really taught what liberty of conscience was by the Baptists. Understand, the Baptists knew some things the founding fathers. Did not know. I've studied these men inside and out, and I again greatly respect and appreciate all their contributions. But you've got to understand there was a series of battles in the Virginia legislature long before this became a fight on a national level with the new country. So, in other words, the Baptists of Virginia fighting up to the Revolution and all the way through the Revolution, all that time frame, there were Baptists sitting in jail fighting for liberty of conscience fighting for new laws to be put on the books in Virginia to change their very own charters and constitutions and, and, and laws in the legislature there in Virginia. While there were Baptists out on the battlefields, almost down to a man, almost every Baptist fought in the revolution. And so you have these Baptists sitting in jail while Baptists are out fighting in the revolution, and it just made no sense. But the truth was... They won a series of victories in Virginia. Now we can demonstrate this, and i 'll show you a signage with the privilege of putting up uh, several years ago that illustrates this. But there's a series of victories. So, in other words, uh, Madison would attempt to throw to the Baptists this thing called tolerance. And so they redid the preamble of the Constitution there in Virginia. And what they wanted to do is they wanted it to, to, to restate it and refix it and say this what we're going to do is we are now going to tolerate the Baptists and the Quakers and others. And the Baptists looked at that with, with a hairy eyeball. Amen. They hated that. They abhorred it. They said tolerance is a beast and it's, it's vicious, it, it presupposes that there are two classes of people. There is a class that chooses to tolerate or not to tolerate way up here, and then there's the poor saps that follow and swallow, pay and obey, and they do whatever they're told, and they're either tolerated or not tolerated, and it still is not a, a level ground of liberty for everybody that's not the kind of liberty we're talking about and they were the ones that said if it's not absolute liberty if it's not liberty for all then it's not liberty at all and they forced the hand of these men until the laws that were passed in virginia didn't say that we'll tolerate anymore but that there'll be full liberty for all groups of, of believers or non-believers alike and that's what the virginia uh, constitution and laws rev there was a virginia statute for religious liberty that was greatly debated and uh, so there was Several victories they won. We may have a chance to talk about all those victories a little bit later. But I just want to emphasize this one point easily provable from, from history. When these men wanted to give the Baptists tolerance, they said that's not what we're talking about, that's not liberty, and then they had to teach them what liberty was. Now John Leland's going to go even further in his instruction and in teaching them, he's going to force their hand because the Virginia Baptists had so many people, they had a lot of power and a lot of clout. There's a marker for the man Reuben Ford I mentioned here. He was an advocate of religious liberty, clerk of the General Committee and of the Meeting of Correspondence, and so he was one of these men they'd write these petitions. They first begin to circulate them in their meetings and then they'd go to their churches and get signatures from all their people. Then they'd go out the highways and byways and get everybody they could who wanted liberty for everybody to sign these petitions. There's uh, the Goochland Church. If you've ever met Brother Beller, that's him there with the flannel shirt on the left there, walking into the Goochland Church. This is back probably about ten years ago. He passed away about seven years ago. So In 2006, they were 235 years old, so Goochland Church goes back to the Samuel Harris era. William Weber was a young preacher out of this church, and he would go, and they would start the Dover Baptist Church out of the Goochland Church. William Weber was one of those men, you'll notice. He was in prison in the jails of Chesterfield and Middlesex, he aided in organizing the Baptist General Association of Virginia and was moderator. So he was right in the midst of this as well. And maybe you remember and I don't know if we went over we didn't read that sign there at Chesterfield, that big monument inside the courthouse uh, lawn there, but his name is on that. And so this is about six, seven miles down the road from Goochland. This would be a daughter church, and this church was very much involved in that fight for religious liberty as well. There's a picture of that. There's just a marker that's there for William Weber. Now the Baptists, as I mentioned, began to circulate petitions. Some held so many signatures and were so large they had to be delivered in a wheelbarrow. Some of them had over ten thousand signatures. Now, that's a lot of signatures, amen. Uh, in a in a rural colony like Virginia, to travel out through the countryside, but they took these massive. And what they were pleading for was please. Give us liberty of conscience. Allow us to have our own churches. We don't want to be molested anymore. Uh, You're arresting us for these unlawful reasons. By the way, they didn't have You Can't Preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ laws on the books. They were getting them as disturbers of the peace, vagabonds, all kinds of different things. And uh, so, that, so there, a lot of these petitions had to do uh, with the unlawful imprisonment and such. But here's a, an extant document. This is in the Virginia uh, Baptist Historical Society archives up there. This is a, a piece of a petition from the meeting of the Baptists of Powhatan County where they were pleading for liberty of conscience. By the way, if you have the Samuel Harris book, how many of you, was it Samuel Harris book back there, right son? I'm sure some of you got that. Uh, Samuel Harris booklet, in the back of that, you'll notice that I, I reproduced several of the correspondence letters that they had from the General Association with several of the early leaders. I want to say that there's some in there to Jefferson, and I know for sure they congratulated uh, Washington on winning the presidency and a lot of other things. Those are in the back of that book there. Now, let's move forward if we could. The Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. Okay. The American Revolution lasted from 1775 to 1783. And I really kind of go against what I actually believe when I say this, but I'm saying what the history books teach on this. And I don't want to cause any more controversies. And I don't want to be like the captain of I got a better opinion. But, um, anyway, I don't really believe the revolution started at Concord, Lexington. I think it started long before the sinking of the Gatsby, long before the Boston Tea Party, long before the Boston Massacre. I really believe that the revolution started in North Carolina. And uh, right over at Alamance is where that battle took place. Listen, that was a group of people on American soil that were sons of the soil that took on the agents of England and the military that England had raised. Uh, and, and, and really, it was a province of England. So they took on the governor under the king right here on American soil. So, and by the way, what they did was recognize by the rest of the colonies and begin to spark revolutionary fires. So my opinion is uh, the revolution in its infancy really started here and they stood for the same principles that the whole would stand for. That would be taxation without representation. All the underlings of Governor Tryon would go out They'd be taxing people to death. They no longer would be able to feed their families and such. And then they'd be constantly posting new taxes, taking half the money, putting it in their pocket on top of everything else and becoming rich. The legislature was run by all the eastern wealthy uh, plantation owners and the, the Baptists in the Piedmont region who were spawned off that separate Baptist revival. No representation whatsoever. They were just literally being pillaged. And when they couldn't pay, they'd take their horses which was your livelihood, now you couldn't work the fields, now you couldn't get your crop to market, and it just went on from there, taking their homes, and a lot of different things happened. But nonetheless, that's, I, I said I wasn't going to do it, and here I am doing it anyway. Let's just pretend the American Revolution started at Concord Lexington, and the shot they heard around the world, amen, to the Treaty of Paris. Now, Jefferson introduced, as I mentioned, the Virginia statute. Why do you say you're not going to do something to do it, Ted? I don't know, amen? Uh, sorry, excuse me as I go bipolar and talk to myself. I know some of you are sitting thinking the same thing. He just said he wasn't going to say it and then he went ahead and said it anyway. <laughs> All right. So the the, 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 Jefferson introduced the Virginia Statue for Religious Liberty into the Virginia Assembly in 1779. But it was not until January of 1986 that the assembly enacted the statute into state law. And that was after it was fixed, amen, from tolerance to liberty. This is what the Baptists were fighting and petitioning for for two decades. So again, get that, 1786, all right? So we're coming through the revolution now. Then a year and a half later in September of 1787, the Constitution was drafted to govern these new United States of America. Now, let me say something about the Constitution quickly. Uh, everything I say, I, I fear that people are gonna say, why do you say things like that? But, um, would you agree this is a great document? But it, it had a lot of problems. And the evidence of the fact that it had a lot of problems is because it had to be amended over and over and over and over and over. And, uh, one of the things, that, so, so Madison writes this. Let me just try to stick with the story. I'll get too far afield. And at this time, true liberty was understood by few. There was a lot of people that really thought liberty was tolerance. They could not, in their mind, conceive of the state church arrangement ever dying. This is the way governments are run. The state and the church have to be together. And if we don't have a state church, then lawlessness lawlessness will rule, and immorality will take over society, and all those things. So we have to enforce the Ten Commandments and all of that. And so there was kind of a battle going on, and sides were drawn, George Mason and the Virginia Bill of Rights on one side, the Virginia Baptist and Thomas Jefferson on the other side. And so there was this big battle uh, that ensued. Uh, Isaac Backus, just kind of an honorable mention, he was a New England Baptist preacher and warrior, for religious liberty. We talked about him. I don't want to take a whole lot of time on him. Well, all this is going on in Virginia, Bacchus had already been fighting. By the way, one of the greatest things you'll ever visit in Baptist history is the old uh, Congregationalist church where Bacchus was a member there, and they kicked him out for becoming a Baptist, and he goes right down about a block away and starts a Baptist church, amen? But ultimately, they have the cemetery, and uh, legally that's where they buried Bacchus, but Bacchus is buried right against the side of the congregation. Church house. And I don't even like calling it a church. They got a woman, I think she's a lesbian pastor there now. But what's awesome about this is Bacchus' tombstone is in the shape of a pulpit and it faces the Presbyterian or the, the old Congregationalist church. And it, all you have is a little driveway in the pulpit and you're just facing the church. It's like he being dead yet preacheth. Amen? And so we always go there and lecture from that. Man, last time we went there and we're not even going to let him know we're here. Right about the time we leave, here comes, you know, whatever, named Susie Lesbian coming out, literally, and she's the pastor. And she, oh, you should all come in. It's like, oh, thank you, ma'am, you know. It's really weird. But anyway, um, so Bacchus, uh, that, that's really, when you see that pulpit face to church, it's like, yep, that's Isaac, amen. <laughs> that's who he was. Uh, m- let me just digress for a moment. I don't, I don't think it's in this show, but maybe you didn't know this, but at the first session of the Continental Congress, uh, Isaac Bacchus was there. In fact, there was an entourage of Baptist people. There was Hezekiah Smith, the uh, Princeton-educated man who birthed over 30 churches and pastored in Haverhill, Massachusetts for over 30 years. There was John Gano. He was the one who baptized Washington at the conclusion of the revolution. He was a church planner, pastored over here at the Jersey Settlement Baptist Church, was at Scotch Plains, First Baptist of Philadelphia, pastored the First Baptist Church in New York City during the revolution. They had to sneak him out of the city, but he was a revolutionary church planner. But uh, he was there as well. Uh, James Manning was there, the founder of the school at Rhode Island, which became what we know today to be Brown University. That was a Baptist school. Most of them were started Baptist or at least extremely religious schools. We talked about Dunster and Harvard, but uh, nonetheless, he was there. And uh, so, so all of these men go and that uh, they they sit in the in the session, the first session of the Continental Congress. Well. John and Sam Adams are there as well, and they get into this debate, and it's the Baptists and John and Sam Adams. Okay, basically. Now there's several other men, but these men are there. I think the governor of Pennsylvania was there as well. But uh, they're there arguing and debating, and uh, what it came to, and that's where that famous statement came from. First they said, there is no state church arrangement in Massachusetts, to which Isaac Bacchus responded and begins to list the problems and all the persecution and everything like that. And the whole idea was this, we are willing to come and unite with our dear countrymen for every prudent effort to win the war was almost an exact quote of what they said. However, we want to know why we're fighting this battle. What kind of liberty is it that you propose? What kind of nation will we have when this is done? They said, we'll fight, but we want to fight for a free nation, one that's never been seen before, one like the Rhode Island experiment. They argued that. So then after a little while, uh, Sam Adams said this. He said, Sir, if you expect there to be a change in the church state arrangement in Massachusetts, you may as well expect a change in the solar system. Finally it got tabled after about three hours of argument. Uh, now the, the Adamses went back to Massachusetts and they begin to slander the Baptists and say they don't want to fight the revolution. They're traitors. Isaac Backus went back, picked up his pen, started writing little pamphlets and spreading the news everywhere and turned the hearts of those in Massachusetts to understand. What they wanted to do was fight, lay down their lives if necessary. In fact, Howes and the Virginia historian said, no class of the peoples of America were more ardent defenders of liberty than the Baptists of Virginia. New England Baptists were were just the same. All the Baptists were great patriots. So, uh, But Bacchus again turned the tide of all that. But it's just interesting because most people don't know, in Carpenter's Hall at the first session, the, the largest amount of debate that day was the Baptists on one side and the Adamses on the other side of that well moving on all right enter John Leland Now I got to stop for a moment I want you to look at his head amen that massive frontal lobe with the huge brain in there amen very little education but brilliant and he's one of those men he's an anomaly in other words it had to be God that put this this wisdom and and knowledge inside of his head. He wasn't a an educated man like John Clark, who had been to you know the schools, and then he'd been to the University of Leiden in Holland, where they were at the peak of their education during that time. No, this man, uh, he really was not a very learned man. But much like William Carey, who sat on a cobbler's bench. Praise God, I got to handle that cobbler's bench. Man, One time sat there and taught himself six different languages with books that he had borrowed from people. This man understood government probably greater than any American maybe that ever lived. And if you read the writings of Elder John Leland, you'll read the first sections about 43 pages about his life, and the whole rest of about 500 and some pages is his views on civil governments and religious liberty and all those type things. An awesome read. And you can get that, by the way, through Calvary Publishing. I would encourage you not to buy it if you're not going to read it because it's not an easy read. Amen? However... Now, he was born in Massachusetts, called an apostle of religious and political liberty. Converted at the age, at age 20. Now check this out—the connection here: baptized by Noah Alden, who was baptized by Shubal Stearns. Amen. So again, we see the connection in these guys and how it all worked together. So, first thing we find about Leland, is he's going to travel down to Virginia. If I can get this Mac to work, he is. Amen. Let's try this again. You gotta be kidding me! That's why I like this push button thing up here. Amen. All right. Ministry accomplishments. He traveled to Virginia because he felt uh, really called of God to preach the gospel. And he said that he had some kind of a vision or some kind of an answer to prayer, at least, that God had told him he needed to go and fight and establish religious liberty at the age of about 22 years old. So he goes to Virginia. This is interesting because he... F- you know, firsthand begins to see all these guys sitting in jails, and he gets really stirred about this. And so he knows then this is where God wants him to lead, to be. But he doesn't have a wife yet. One of the funniest things you'll ever read is him saying, uh, and, "And I had to go back to Massachusetts, and I went into the quote occupation of wife getting." Amen. And uh, and then he had obtained a wife. <laughs> And went back, it's almost like the Hmong culture, you know, the Loatians are there, they throw them over their shoulder and they got to run through the village and if you can knock her off then she don't have to marry you, you know, but anyway, I just—it always—I was thinking the Hmong when I think of that, amen, but anyway, so William Cathcart records, he gets his wife, his success as a preacher, so he first becomes a preacher, he starts to pastor at the old Mount Pony Baptist Church and uh, anyway... A lot of the stories I could tell you about that, but, but, uh, he realizes, he says, my feet are more prone to, to an evangelist, to, to, to being out and preaching in the highways and byways. And so he began to travel and preach. He had 3,009 sermons preached, 700 persons baptized, and two large churches formed, one of 300 members and another of 200 members. In addition to this, while he was in Virginia, he traveled approximately 75,000 miles on horseback in itinerant evangelism. There's one of the old pictures, this is a classic, of Leland, and there's Madison in the foreground. Leland standing up on a pickle barrel preaching uh, Jesus Christ. And then later, uh, that ministry would shift, and he would begin to talk about civil and religious uh, uh, liberty issues as well as preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, I mentioned that first place that he pastored. This is where our society was actually born. We were standing over this marker... And uh, that chip was out of it. And I begin to tell the man, this is on private property. It's very difficult for them to let you into this. But uh, nonetheless, I begin to tell them how these are all passing off the scene. And a guy popped his hat off, an offering broke out. And all of a sudden, they said, you're the man to do it, amen, Uh, to preserve these markers and stuff. and so. um, But anyway, this is the very site where he first pastored there. And there's no church here anymore. But it's neat that they keep the marker out in their pasture field uh, so that it can still be seen. But Leland had opposition from state-sponsored religion. Not only was he in prison, but he faced angry mobs at times. One time in administering baptism to a new convert, he faced the fury of her unconverted husband. He stated, in the south part of Orange, a man took his gun with a profession to kill me. He had given me consent for his wife to be baptized, and the meeting was appointed for that purpose. But when we got to the place, and I had taken her by the hand to lead her into the water, there was an alarm that the man was coming with his gun. While a detachment of the congregation went to meet the man to pacify him, I thought, now or never, and baptized her. No mischief ensued. He was a champion for liberty of conscience. So let me share this with you. Let's hear it from the, from the mouth of the man. Now, let me just say this uh, and, and try to preface this. Never have I seen liberty of conscience uh, clarified uh, with, with, with such clarity, with so few words, so succinctly stated. It's not a massive statement, but it's all-inclusive. And I think you'll appreciate that when I point this out to you. Here's what liberty of conscience is the Leland. If a creed, let me just, here's his thoughts on submitting conscience to the state first, and then we'll get to that. If a creed of faith, now watch this clause, established by law. So here's, here's his attitude against state churches. Here's why we shouldn't have state churches. If it was ever so short and ever so true, if I believe the whole of it with all my heart, Should I subscribe to it before a magistrate in order to get indulgence, preferment, or even protection? I should be guilty of a species of idolatry by acknowledging a power that the head of the church, Jesus Christ, has never appointed. Now this really has to do with separation of church and state too. So he said, hey, you think it's okay to have a stir- state church? If they establish a creed of faith by law, even if I believed all of it, if I had to do that to please the state, then it would be a, a species of idolatry. What he's saying is the church has a head, amen? And it's not the state. We have to keep those two severed. Now, here is his, here is his uh, definition of liberty of conscience. Check out how he covers all the bases in so few words. He said, I mean the inalienable right that each individual has of worshiping his God according to the dictates of his conscience, check it out, without being prohibited, directed, or controlled therein by human law, either in time, place, place, or manner, amen. It's almost like a lease to rent a place or something. I mean, they want to cover all the bases, the fine prints all there, amen. See, so in other words, in reference to this COVID thing, here's what he believed, amen. He said that we shouldn't be prohibited, directed, or controlled by human law, either in the time we worship, in the place that we worship, or in the manner that we worship. So you can have ten, and you can't sing, and you has to be outside. He said, no, that's not liberty of conscience, amen? And so the state doesn't have a right to encroach upon that for any reason. And if they do, then it's going to be a slippery slope, and we'll lose that standard, and that ancient landmark, and that post that's been nailed into the ground, it's going to be movable now, and we're in trouble. Enter James Madison, fourth president of the United States, principal author of the U.S. Constitution, known as the father of the Constitution, Wrote over a third of the Federalist Papers. We'll talk to you about that in just a minute. And he was a leader in the first United States Congress, drafting many basic laws, and was responsible for the first ten amendments of the Constitution. Thus, he is also known as the father of the Bill of Rights. All right. Now, let me tell you this story. This is why you came all week. I promise. Amen? This just gets gooder and gooder. So, Madison writes the Constitution. And he feels as though he should not be one of the delegates from Virginia, so he's not going to run to be on the delegation because he don't think he should be one of the men that votes whether Virginia should ratify it or not. And in that, he has a lot of character. It was politically expedient, therefore he could brag that he was going to do that as well. And that's another side of Madison, but he was was a political genius. He really was in his own right. But uh, he felt like, hey, I wrote the document. Other men should vote and see whether this document is worthy for us to be under its governance. And so uh, when he wrote that, Uh, He began to travel and at the time he's traveling he's writing his Federalist Papers and he's touting his Federalist Papers and he's going from colony to colony trying to convince him that you should ratify and you should make sure that this becomes the law of the land, okay? And as he's doing that, uh, copies of this new constitution, hot off the press, they're being circulated in the several colonies. Well, the Baptists get a hold of them in Virginia, like everybody else, and they come before the face of John Leland and other Baptists, and all of a sudden they're extremely concerned about this. For the one thing that they were fighting for was conspicuously missing. Uh, they looked through it, and he had about ten objections. In fact, he wrote down all of his objections on paper. Madison himself examined them and uh, attempted to refute them later. But uh, his chief argument was this, that there's no mention of there's no uh, mention of religious liberty in here that everyone will have liberty of conscience in this new nation. That's what we were fighting for. He said the only mention of anything in reference to religion is you can't hold a, a, t- a test religious test to hold federal office. Other than that, there's no mention of religion whatsoever. Well, this troubled him. His idea was, if we are now taken out from under these chains, and we are now put under new chains, we're still under chains. And it goes back to the speech that Patrick Henry made. Uh, there's, What's the point of fighting, and what's the point of the revolution if only certain people now will have liberty? And so he's very concerned about that. So he began to go about and tell all the Baptist preachers, and go to the general association meetings, and tell them to go tell their people and their neighbors and their cousins by the dozens, do. Uh, do not vote for this monstrosity. Any delegate that wants to run to ratify this and from Virginia, we're going to cancel him. There's no way we're going to be able to, to support that. Virginia is not going to ratify. So Virginia begins to teeter very delicately on ratifying and not ratifying. Now, there's numerous reasons why that's not a good thing. I can't get into all of them, but... Virginia is like the mother colony at this point, amen? Uh, Virginia is basically doing everything. everything's coming out of Virginia. The document itself was written in Virginia. The man that wrote it was from Virginia. And not only that, but if this document is not approved, what will happen? Will we divide into numerous different uh, factions or new countries? Will uh, they be able to very quickly and easily come in and attack us and kill us? Don't we need to bind together for the common defense, which was really one of the reasons to join together to begin with for the common defense? What will happen if we don't do this? And so Madison becomes very concerned about this. Well, as he's becoming concerned, he, here, he gets uh, three letters in the mail as he's traveling. So he's traveling. He's going to go through New York. He's going to come down through Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, back to Virginia. And as he's traveling, he receives three letters. One of them is from a friend of John Leland. One of them is from his own father, and yet a third letter came. All of them, in essence, said this, Virginia's in trouble. She's not going to ratify. What will we do? Madison becomes concerned for his own political future, and he says, well, what's the problem? Why aren't they liking this document? What are their issues? And it was sent to him all ten objections that were written by John Leland. Now, I get the idea, and it's not expressly stated, but you seem to pick this up as you study the whole story through the history books. You don't think that Leland ever knew that Madison had the ten objections because he's kind of surprised that Madison is able to answer so freely nine out of ten of them, okay? But he gets these, these objections, and he begins to read through them, and it was, he was encouraged this way. Since on your way home, you have to go past Orange, you need to stop and see the ringleader, John Leland. If you can persuade Leland, Leland will be able to persuade all the other Baptists. He's the leader. He's the the chief voice. Leland became the undisputed leader of the Baptists in Virginia. Samuel Harris and Leland were good friends. Probably Harris was the spiritual leader. Leland was the political brain and mind in all of this. And again, just gifted by the God of heaven. So long story short, Madison determines to do that. And at the same time, he determines, I will now run for the delegation. I'm the only one that I know for sure uh, that gets voted in. will actually go and ratify the, this, this Constitution. If we don't do it, the whole thing will fall to pieces, you know? And so he travels over to Leland's home. Leland's not home. He knocks on the door, and his wife says he's out praying in an oak flat. So he travels out to that oak flat, which is now a place I'll show you here a picture of in just a minute. And he's out there praying in the oak flat, and here rides up James Madison and he dismounts his horse, and they begin to go into this uh, significant meeting together, and this brainstorming together, and he begins to object, and Madison has an answer. Leland begins to object, and Madison already had his predetermined answer. And they went through everything, but they came down to the last thing. The chief concern of Leland and of the Baptists was, there's no guarantee of liberty of conscience for every citizen of the new United States of America. And so it was... At that point, now remember those two counties I mentioned. Guess where James Madison was from? Do you know that there were so many Baptists in those areas, Orange and Culpeper counties, that the only way he could get voted in to be one of the delegates to go and choose either to ratify or not was to get the Baptist to vote him in, Amen. I see how revivals lead into political uh, good things in politics, Amen. We've demonstrated that on numerous occasions, but so that just amazes me, Amen. And so both Madison and Jefferson's homes are both right in that area. But And don't go there and looking for John Leland information because they'll look at you like you're crazy and say, you must mean George Mason, amen? And then you drive right down the road and there's the monument for it. They don't want to give any credit to the Baptists at all for this. But by the way, what I'm about to tell you, it showed up in the, in the Virginia Gazette. It showed up in the local newspapers. This was uh, national news. This was everywhere. It's in the Madison papers. L.H. Butterfield documented all the various places it's in. But nonetheless, and Butterfield was, again, I mentioned him. He's, he, was, uh, he was an official uh, compiler uh, of the uh, uh, James Madison papers. Or No, no, he was an f- official compiler of the uh, John Adams papers. And I want to say the George Mason papers in an official capacity for Virginia. He wrote a book called Thomas Jefferson, uh, or James Madison, rather, Jeffersonian Itinerant. And he wrote one on John Leland, John Leland, Jeffersonian Itinerant. But nonetheless, uh, these books, one of them is, I, I think you may be able to get it for about $250 on the Internet. I have a digital copy of it. But it gives a lot of this information. All right, so James Madison seeks out Leland's support. Leland held such sway among the largely Baptist populace of Virginia, Madison became concerned for his political future. He knew he'd not be elected unless he could persuade Leland to endorse him. James Madison met with Leland, and after hearing Leland's reasoning for a Bill of Rights, he agreed with him. This meeting changed the course of nearly 1800 years of church history, and with a gentleman's handshake, the promise was, we will vote you in as a delegate from Orange and Culpepper you go and ratify the Constitution as it stands, because we understand if you pull the plug now, everything will break out into anarchy, and who knows what will come of all of us. And But once you ratify that, we are then going to vote you, as the Baptists will persuade everyone in Virginia we can, to vote you into the first uh, uh, Congress, and when you stand on the floor of Congress, your first duty will be to present a Bill of Rights, namely, the first one being that Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. There's an old movie called Magnificent Heritage and it's no longer available. But that movie had an awesome depiction in this. It was made in 1950, and it covered this story. And one of the things that you see in the very last scene of it was James Madison step up on the floor of Congress for his first statement, his first speech, about the amendments that he wants to introduce. And he looks over there in the congregation, and there's about 15 of the Virginia Baptist preachers that had sat in jail. And there's John Leland looking up at him, and John Leland nods his head, and James Madison smiles at him and begins to declare that. First Amendment, it's just a glory, man. I'm telling you stuff to make a Catholic priest shout, amen? It's glorious. Madison wanted to be in this company. And indeed, he ended up in that company, amen? Madison then promised the Baptist preacher if he would secure the Baptist vote for his election, one day he'd introduce a Bill of Rights on the floor of the U.S. Congress. This promise he kept. David Cummins stated of Leland, He was a neighbor of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Being very active in the political arena, he not only expressed Baptist views of liberty of conscience, but he rallied the Baptists in support of James Madison as a delegate to the Virginia Constitutional Convention and later in his election to the House of Representatives. Madison had promised the Baptists that if elected, he would introduce a Bill of Rights early in the first session of Congress. And now you may go to this place... What's that place? That is the Leland-Madison Memorial Park, a place that is set aside to commemorate this significant meeting that resulted in James Madison uh, giving us our First Amendment to the Bill of Rights because of the influence of the Baptists. That marker is in memorial of the Venerable John Leland. Elder John Leland, courageous leader of the Baptist Doctrine, Ardent advocate of the principles of democracy, vindicator of separation of church and state. Near this spot in 1788, Elder John Leland and James Madison, the father of the American Constitution, held a significant interview, which resulted in the adoption of the Constitution by, the Virgi- by Virginia, then Madison. A member of Congress from Orange presented the First Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing religious liberty, free speech, and a free press. This satisfied Leland and his Baptist followers and it goes on. There's a bunch of Baptists waving their Bibles and say, why are they doing that? Because they got every right to now. Amen? Because there's liberty of conscience because of your Baptist forefathers. Those 45 men didn't sit in jail in vain. All those petitions were not in vain. All those prayers and all those years of struggle and establishing it through the legislature of Virginia then pressuring Madison and Jefferson. Uh, it's an awesome thing. Amen? And now the big cheese. <laughs> now, what on earth could the big cheese be? Madison was a young man when the victory was won. God was still going to use him well up into his eighties. He would travel back to Connecticut. There in Connecticut, he would fight for a complete separation of church and state. For you see, a lot of the clergy still had held massive amounts of land, and uh, they were, you know, they made it rich for years. This money, really, the land should have been sold and the money given back to the people. This was the view of a lot of the Baptists. And uh, so it was that uh, men like Leland would spend many years trying to fight and convince that and get the legislators to pass these laws to give that back to the people the way it should have been to begin with, amen, and not to let these men hold on to this land that was unlawfully taken while they persecuted and maligned the Baptists. Well, then he goes over to Massachusetts and God calls him to pastor a church over there. So he begins to pastor what is known as the First Baptist Church of Cheshire, Massachusetts. And I know it sounds like New England would probably be polluted with a lot of cities and all that, but Western Mass is just country. It's just like rural North Carolina or Virginia or Pennsylvania or anything like that. And Cheshire is one of the prettiest little places on earth. When you enter town, there's a big lake, and it's just a small town. Leland is up on the mountain buried. I can't explain it. This is going to sound kooky. But you ever been in one of those places where it's just the way it's situated, it feels like you can almost touch the clouds. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's way up on this knob where he's buried up there. It's real quiet. And uh, But anyway, so he's he went over and pastored that church. And uh, But he decided, hey, when Jefferson became president, Jefferson was for entrepreneurship. He was not for taxing you to death for the products that you're producing as this country was being built. And uh, he had helped them so greatly. They had greatly corresponded with him. You've heard of the Danbury Baptist and letters that were back and forth with those civic leaders. And that's where the separation of church and state argument actually came from, was one of those Danbury Baptist letters. So they loved Jefferson. Jefferson loved the Baptists. He said, The truest form of democracy that was on this earth was a Baptist congregation. That's what he said uh, with his own mouth. But uh, they decided they wanted to be a blessing and show their love and appreciation for their president. And so... What did they do? Check this out. To show their gratitude and love for Jefferson, one day all the milk from nine hundred local loyal Republican cows was collected and brought into Cheshire, where the population gathered to sing him socialize and make cheese. The product of this effort was a mammoth cheese wheel, four feet four and one half inches in diameter, fifteen inches thick, and yes, weighing twelve hundred and thirty five pounds. May it look something like this in reference to the actual monument that they have that is patterned after the actual cheese press they built for this. Now, what do you do with something like that? Well, it's very simple. You get a couple Baptist preachers that, that promised Leland and his, and his friend, we're gonna, they take it on an ox cart to the head of the Hudson River. No joke. They put it on a flatboat and Leland and his preacher friends, they, they, literally floated all the way down the Chesapeake Bay. This is awesome. All right. And when they get to the Chesapeake Bay, this is not fake. I'm telling you, that's God's truth. They put it on another ox cart and they drag it on new year's day to the white house uh, to give to Jefferson in the presence of foreign and domestic dignitaries. And, uh, Man, you think you're laughing. The newspaper's got a hold of this. You Go back and check Google. Maybe you can find some of this stuff today. That'd be awesome if you do that. But man, the newspaper's got a hold of this. What will the crazy Baptist do next? You know, the big cheese and what it meant for Jefferson. And then the, the jokes all follow. How much How much did Jefferson eat, you know? And when will he use the toilet again or something like that? And then the, the joke was how much of it uh, did he give away as gifts because there was just too much. And then how much it ultimately molded and had to be dumped in the Potomac River was another one of the jokes. But uh, this was awesome. And it was just the Baptist saying thank you. Amen. And I think we ought to have hearts of gratitude for those that help us in the struggle for religious liberty. Well, our society, there's Brother Gary Stinnett, and he's a, a dear brother, contractor, and he helps us with some of our projects we decided it was important to put something there. There's nothing about Leland in Cheshire. Uh, I mean, his church is there. Inside his church, you can see his ordination papers. There's a letter from Madison endorsing him and telling him he's a good man and stuff. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the archives there. And then his grave is there. But really, the people at Cheshire don't know the story, and they'll never know the story. So we decided something like this, $5,400 or something like that. It's a, a stainless steel uh, etched plate. And then it's powder coated. And something like this will last a long time. It's right on the Appalachian Trail, by the way. Uh, I'll show you that here in just a second. There's a pastor from Missouri the Aaron Rogerson. I had the privilege of being able to craft uh, the writing on this and to be able to share from a Baptist perspective. We just had a little unveiling and uh, they're so kind to us there. And you'll see me here. This is the Appalachian Trail. This is right there on that same grassy spot. We didn't realize this as we were constructing and We're thinking, oh yeah, this is on the Appalachian Trail. So all these people go right by the sign, amen, walking into Cheshire to go down to the end of town to go back on the Appalachian Trail. So that was pretty neat. There's the chairwoman of the Board of Selectmen. I'm not sure how that works, amen, chairwoman of the Board of Selectmen. But nonetheless, uh, Mrs. Franciscone and she helped us and she was so very kind. It was one of those deals, oh, I'm a Baptist too. It's like, praise God, you know, <laughs> amen. And so she let us do whatever we wanted, which was really awesome. And so that was the finished product there, and it's still there. And we had it refurbished here. Uh, last year, we paid about $1,000, had a company come in and take it apart, repowder coat it, make sure that it's preserved for future generations. Uh, now, that brings me to this. Um, being from Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm sure you were a little bit more far out west, I don't know. What you folks did, I was public school and in Catholic school, but we took field trips to Philly all the time and been down there numerous times and stuff. And I remember as a kid, you know, you go, you got to go into the tourist trap store and you buy a little bell and drive your mom crazy for about three weeks till the cheap junk breaks, you know, get a big pencil and all that stuff. And I remember the bell was a joke as a kid. You know, I'll bang your head off that and put another crack in it. You know, stuff, stupid stuff like that kids say on, on trips. But I went back there about 10, 12 years ago, and I was doing some Baptist history research, and I stopped there and looked at it with another preacher friend and, and it just struck me like a ton of bricks that that crack the whole time really should have been speaking to me about the, how fragile our liberty really is. And I don't think that's by accident. I think whenever we look at the Liberty Bell, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and all the inhabitants thereof, that is what God would prefer for this society so that the Gospel can get out and so people can choose to reject or accept Jesus Christ And yet, my friends, it's so fragile. You see, it's not guaranteed to every generation. And I've never wondered what kind of home going those men had that won it. I think they had a glorious home going for how God used them and how they allowed God to use them. But I've often wondered, are we going to have to be the generation that stands before God having lost the liberty of conscience that we have here in America? And just how sad that is. When John Leland was buried, he wrote his own epitaph. And there... On an obelisk up there in the backside of Cheshire on the top of a mountain, he wrote these words. He said, if my brethren ever choose to erect a little monument over my body, here's what I prefer to say. Here lies the body of John Leland, who labored 67 years to promote piety and to vindicate the civil and religious rights of all men. Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, that we have a goodly heritage. Thank You for men and women who are willing to give everything so we could be free. I thank You for every soldier that fought, bled, and died in our revolution. I thank You for every soldier in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. And God, then there's those soldiers of the cross that suffered and bled and died, that we could have religious liberty. And Father, we appreciate them both today. Some of them invested, like Leland said, 67 years of his life to vindicate the civil and religious rights of all men. And God, it seems today we're losing it. And I beg You tonight, Father, and I believe we can pray this in one accord, would You help our nation? Oh Lord, we've come on hard times, Father. And it's only going to get worse unless You intervene. Father, would You please do a work in our land. Father, would You raise up harvesters and laborers to go into Your harvest fields, gleaners, those that would go out and pick the crops and work from dawn till dusk and serve You in Your fields. Lord, please raise up laborers. God, would You send men out to start churches. Father, would You work in the hearts of people and tenderize people everywhere the Gospel goes so that they may hear and receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, as much as we thank You for what's been done by our Baptist forefathers, Lord, help us today to live our lives in such a way that we'll make some Baptist history, that we'll make a difference because You have worked through us. We thank You and praise You for all that You've said to us this week. Help it not to soon pass out of our hearts. Help us to be loyal, faithful servants of You. And may You get great, great glory, maximum glory from our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.